Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We will be looking this morning in Acts chapter 18, and you can find it on your pew Bible in pages 927 and 28. Here now the reading of God's holy Word. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centre, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray together. Our God, we thank you for the truth of your word, and we pray, O Lord, by the power of your spirit, might you impart it onto our hearts and our minds, that we might love and see Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. A couple of weeks ago, not too long, maybe two weeks, if you were with us, we've been in, obviously, the book of Acts, and where we were, we were in the city of Corinth, and Luke is telling us here that, well, Paul leaves, and when he leaves, he traditionally starts, or when he's leaving Corinth, this is the traditional marker, you might say, of what Paul would consider his third missionary journey. Now, that's somewhat misleading because if you're reading the text, it doesn't actually begin until he arrives at Antioch, but this is the section of the text that begins Paul's final missionary journey in the book of Acts. And when we read the very beginning, in fact, you perhaps heard all all of these different places. We hear several places, travel plans, you might say, of Paul. There's not a whole lot of detail there, and so I want to help you understand what you just read, what you're looking at. By my account and most others, is a journey that Paul takes that is some 1,200 plus miles. Some would even argue it's 1,300 plus. And Luke isn't giving you much information on it. He's not telling you a great deal about the places he's going and stopping and what he's doing and why he's leaving. And I think there's a reason for that. I think you'll see it in the weeks to come, and you have already seen it once, and I think Luke is trying to hone your attention in. He's trying to give you a focus, and he's saying, I want you to see what happens in the city of Corinth. 
That's where we were. And I want you to see what happens in the city of Ephesus. What you'll learn is Paul spent nearly two years in Corinth, and he's going to spend some three years in Ephesus. And so I think Luke is trying to say, pay attention to what is taking place in these two cities. And so our passage this morning, we encounter some different people upon his travel. Some come with him, and one in which he engages on his journey. And what are we to make of it? with the little information that we're given. How do we understand it? And I think Luke is trying to give us a picture, or better stated, a sketch. A sketch of the gospel. Now, I'm not artistic in any sense of the word. I'm often made fun of in my family for my drawings. But I live with some who have far superior drawings. And my understanding of a sketch is that it is a rough drawing. It's something that is, it's an outline. It's, it's trying to age you. It's not the final product. It's not the final picture, but it's, it's trying to show you something of the skeleton, something of what in its fullness it will be. And I think that's what Luke is providing for us here. What are some of the gospel sketches? When the gospel comes, what does it do? How does it begin this outline of a work, this rough draft work? you might say, of the gospel. And I think there are three aspects that we could say about the gospel sketch as it pertains to this passage. The first, it is not a coincidence, but I think it is freedom. I think a part of the gospel, when it comes to work, it begins to demonstrate a picture of freedom. Now, why do I say that? Well, let's begin in verse 18. What does Luke say? He says, after this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then took leave of the brothers. What are we talking about? What is Luke saying? After what? It's talking about Paul leaving Corinth after his time in Corinth. Now, why do we want to draw our attention to that? Because Paul has been in Corinth before verse 18, 18 months. And after that, Luke says, there were many more days Some suggest another six months, hence why people would argue that Paul was in Corinth for two years, but he was in Corinth for 18 months, and then he stays a little bit longer, and what takes place in Corinth is quite a big deal, and we need to understand what does it mean, what took place, and how it applies in our text. What's Paul's understanding of Corinth? What happened with Paul in Corinth? If you remember, we didn't highlight it as much, but if you remember earlier in chapter 18, Paul is brought to court. The Jews are planning an attack on Paul. They've brought him to court. They're saying that Paul is teaching and preaching the gospel, and what it's doing is it is saying that we are to worship God and not the emperor, not the one in Rome. And so Paul, by Jews, are brought before Gallio, Now, he's a significant figure. You don't know much about him except for the fact that he's the governor. He's the proconsul. He's the leader. And what Gallio does is incredibly significant. You can read about it in verses 14 and 15. This is what is taking place. Paul is on trial, as it were, and he's about to make a defense for himself. And Gallio chimes in, and this is what he says. If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. 
But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to judge of these things. Do you understand what Gallio is doing here? He is making a legal verdict. He is pronouncing a judgment that is saying, I am not going to take up this case. We're throwing it out. It's not going to happen. And what, is the, what are the ripple effects of that? Well, in some sense, we should understand that is Paul being told he is free to preach the gospel. That is Gallio saying, this is a, in Latin, you would say it this way, a religio licita. This means religious freedom. This is not something that Paul is quite accustomed to. When you read many of his epistles, what are you learning about Paul's ministry? It's described by being something quite different, religio illicita. It means it's illegal to worship. And so Gallio has just pronounced a judgment, a legal verdict that says, yes, Paul can operate freely in and around this city preaching the the gospel. Paul is free. He is free to preach. And what does he do? I understand that 18 months doesn't sound very long. But consider what happens in these 18 to 2 years. Paul preaches regularly. Many believe Churches are strengthened all because of this legal verdict. It is quite the favor, you might say, because Paul's under compulsion, you see. He's preaching the gospel. He was brought on charges for not to doing it, but you already know something about Paul. He preaches the gospel if he's free in the country or if he's not free. He's saying... Freedom, as it pertains to your nation, isn't real freedom. We have a call to preach the gospel no matter where we are. It is the truth beyond all truths. It's the standard and objective truth. And so we preach the gospel. But yet now Paul is now given a favorable result so that he can go out and continue to do that. It's a big deal. Gallio is not a Christian, Gallio is not a conservative. He's not up there trying to think, how do I make life easier for Christians? He doesn't care about them. But there is one who does. What do we learn about this verdict? We need to be encouraged by who's really in control. Gallio's not the one in control, is he? He might be the governor of Corinth, but he's not the governor of the universe. God is, in fact, sovereign. You know, that that is a term we often use and we often define, and, and many of us use it correctly and define it correctly, but when we use it, we often are trying to talk about personal experiences. We're wrestling with troubles, and we need to be reminded that God is in control of them. It is true, It is true that he is in charge of my life and every experience and activity of it. He is also in control and sovereign over the rulers. He can use pagans to accomplish his plans. 
Why is that an encouragement? Because you and I aren't to be shaken by whoever is elected. You and I aren't to be shaken by whatever plan or policy that is enacted because none of it is what controls. God controls because he's sovereign. And you and I have a faithful responsibility, whether in good or bad circumstance, to preach the gospel. And Paul is given such favor that he is, in fact, able to preach the gospel. When chaos creeps in, you need to be reminded that it is actually Jesus who calms the storm. There is no other man to do so. He is in control. We might not know the purpose. We might not know the reason. In fact, brothers and sisters, we might not even like what took place. But from eternity to eternity, the Lord is on his throne. And you and I are free If you are in Christ and you can preach the gospel, you can share it. That's not actually the only freedom that Paul is enjoying here in this passage. He is free to preach the gospel, but there is, in fact, another freedom. What does Paul do with his freedom? When Paul is, in fact, told, you can move around the city and preach the gospel, what does he do? Well, we get an interesting little detail, don't we? He left the brothers, he set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centre he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. You know, Luke doesn't give you a whole lot of detail about where he goes, what he eats, where he stays, but he tells you that Paul went to Great Cliffs. Why is that the detail that you want to know? Paul's not married. He doesn't have a wife saying, "You, you look a little rough. You need to do something about that. What's Paul doing cutting his hair? Well, it tells you, not in great detail, but in important detail. We learn that he cut his hair because he made a vow. Now, what, are we, what does Luke mean by that when he says that? We don't actually know for certain, but most would say it's probably what you would call a Nazarite vow. You could read about that in Numbers chapter 6. Uh, I think it's verse 1 through somewhere around verse 20. A Nazarite vow. What do we read about in Numbers chapter 6 on a Nazarite vow? What is that talking about? Well, it's a, it's a vow made by an individual. It can be made by a man. It can be made by a woman. And it is made entirely voluntary. You decide to make this vow. You are not under compulsion. No one is telling you should do this. You decide that you want to make this vow. And what does it mean? Why would you make such a vow? It's because you're trying to say to the Lord, thank you. You recognize some great deliverance or provision or blessing of God, and you're trying to say thank you. Now, if you read Numbers chapter 6, what are the conditions? What are the requirements for a Nazarite vow? There is a specified time that you determine before the Lord, but there are conditions, and that is you cannot have wine or any strong drink. You also can't eat or drink anything that has any association with grapes. And then lastly, you cannot cut your hair. Now, that's an interesting part of it. One is just an abstaining from a certain kind of food and drink, but the other has to do with your hair. Why that? Because there's a sense that says, 
Yes, it's temporary. Yes, it's individual. It's also public. When you don't cut your hair for a while, we all saw you in COVID. We recognized what you look like. It's very public. Some of you had creative ways of dealing with it. But you can recognize when someone decides not to cut their hair, everybody knows. And what is the vow trying to say? God, you have done something so great for me. I don't care who knows. I love you and I want to serve you. I don't care who knows. And so I'm not just going to merely stop drinking a certain drink or eating a certain food. I'm not going to cut my hair. I want people to know I'm all out for who you are and what you're like. And this is the vow that it seems that Paul is taken. He has not cut his hair. Why? Could it be because of what Paul has been experiencing? We've said he's been in Corinth about two years, and he has had a great deal of freedom. That's not something that Paul knows very well, does he? When Paul goes to a city, what happens? He's normally beaten. He's normally left for dead. He's normally put in prison. He's normally mocked. And yet here, it's as though he can see his own body, his bones are healing, his body is gaining strength, and he recognizes God has spared me, and he has provided for me. Oh, I'm so thankful, Lord, for how you have preserved me. And I don't care who knows. I want to love you and serve you in a special way. You can imagine how thankful he must be. Do you remember chapters earlier when we've just read about Saul at that time on the Damascus road? He, he's confronted by Jesus, the risen Jesus. He comes to Christ and, and then God appears to Ananias in a dream. And you remember God's telling him, there's a servant. He, he's coming. His name's Saul. He's coming and I want you to go meet with him. You're going to need to pray with him. You remember Ananias' response? Maybe you said the wrong name, God. Saul doesn't have a great reputation. Isn't that the one who's destroying the church? Do you remember what God says to Ananias? Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And yet Paul has endured no suffering as it appears in Corinth. He's been given relief. And so he says, I'm free and I want to serve you. I want to use my freedom to serve you. That's what Peter picks up on in 1 Peter 2. Live as freed people, free servants. Don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but live as servants of God. And that's Paul's, what he's saying. I'm free, and I want to serve you. And so he makes a vow. Now, some of you are Bible scholars, and you're wondering it seems to me that there's some controversy. Yes, there are some challenges in this passage, and many have tried to argue some of them. I'm not persuaded by most of them. Some are going to try to say, uh, I think Paul went to Jerusalem. 
That's the language that Luke is using when it says that he went up and then he went down. I'm not persuaded by that argument. They're trying to say that Paul cut his hair because he's trying to become all things to all men. He's going to Ephesus, friends. What Jews is he talking to in Ephesus? That is a Gentile territory. It's a Gentile ministry. Some are saying he needs to fulfill the entirety of the vow, and so he has to take with him his hair and burn it with a sacrifice at the temple. You understand the way that this Nazarite vow would conclude is, yes, you have cut your hair. You'd have to make a blood sacrifice in the temple. You can only do that in Jerusalem. I can't even begin to imagine Paul doing that. A blood sacrifice after the risen king. I think Paul is actually trying to show you how free you really are. If Paul wanted to fulfill a true Nazarite vow, then he wouldn't have cut his hair in century. He would have waited for Jerusalem. But I think what he is saying to you is, look at how free I am. God, I've set myself aside to tell everyone I love you and I'm going to serve you. I have finished it here. And he cuts his hair. I think he's doing it intentionally to remind all people, both Jew and Gentile, you need no more blood sacrifice. You have the finished work of Christ and you're free. Enjoy your freedom in the gospel and use it to serve him over and over and over again. Maybe Paul is trying to sing that hymn. Take my life and let it be consecrated Lord to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Paul's free and he wants to use this sketch this rough drawing of what it means to be free in Christ, to give his life, to serve God. He's free. Friends, you're free. If you know Jesus, that's what he tells you in John chapter 8. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. But don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Use it to serve him. For Christ has come to set you free. Stand firm. Stand firm. There's a gospel sketch here of what it means to be free. There's also a gospel sketch of what you might call fervor, gospel fervency. And where do we pick that up? You can begin seeing that in verse 24. We meet somebody who gets a a longer introduction, an extended one, and for good reason. His name is Apollos. What do we learn about him? Well, he's a significant figure. He's, he's a Jewish man, and he's from Alexandria. It means he's an Egyptian. Apollos is from Egypt. He's off of the northern coast of Africa. That is Alexandria. And it meant something. That was a big deal. When someone says, where are you from? If, if you were telling them, I'm from Alexandria, that meant something. Outside of Rome, Alexandria was probably the most prominent city in the empire, It was known to a great deal of both pagan and Jewish scholarship. Alexandria, if you know anything about your history, some 200 years before what we're reading, that's where the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, that's where it was written, out of this city, Alexandria. 
Alexandria had some of the greatest philosophers known to mankind at that time. One of the contemporaries of Jesus, his name was Philo. And he often, often to his detriment, but he would try to sync up Greek mythology and try to parallel it with the Hebrew Bible. That was Philo. He's from Alexandria. And so Apollos is well-trained. That's why Luke calls him, he's an eloquent man. He's competent. He knows the Bible. We don't know when Apollos came to know Christ. Luke's not telling us that. But what we find out is this Jewish man from Egypt, as it were, he's preaching the gospel. He's telling people about Jesus, and he's doing so with fervor. Luke says he's fervor in spirit. He's he's enthusiastic. He's excited to tell people about Jesus. And then Luke wants to tell you something specific about him. What do we learn about Apollos? Other than the fact that he's excited, he teaches Jesus and he teaches him accurately. What he teaches about Jesus, it's accurate things concerning Jesus. And then he tells us one other thing. Though he only knew the baptism of John, and that should stop you for a moment, should grab your attention. What is he, what is he saying? What is Luke trying to tell you? What's going on with Apollos? He teaches accurately the things of Jesus, but he only knows the baptism of John. These people would have understood that language. They knew John the Baptist. When they hear the word baptism, they would not necessarily have understood it the way in which you do. When they hear of John the Baptist, what are they thinking of? When they think of John the Baptist and and his baptisms, how do they understand it? It's a ceremony of purification, It's a cleansing ritual. People needed to be clean or cleansed. They needed to be purified. And that wasn't unique to John the Baptist, you see. That was going on in the Old Testament. Actually, you can read about an interesting one in 2 Kings 5. Naaman is a pretty powerful man in the Syrian army. At one point, he gets leprosy. And one of his servants just happens to be a Jewish girl who finds her way in his presence and says, you need to go talk to Elisha. He'll tell you what to do. And so Naaman finds himself before Elisha and Elisha tells him, you need to go and wash yourself in the Jordan River seven times. And Naaman says, no, I'm not doing that. Not at all. And eventually it sinks in how bad the leprosy is. And so what you read in 2 Kings 5 is that in verse 10, he goes down and washes. And in verse 14, it says he's baptized. It's the same word. And isn't that revealing of what the people understood? Baptism, it's a a healing. It's a restoring. People who are unclean needing to be made clean. But it is John who is saying, yes, and we are unclean before the Lord. We need to be made clean. That's Apollos. Now, he doesn't seem to understand Christian baptism, that Jesus has come. It's not simply that you need to repent, and and absolutely you need to repent. It's not just that you need to be cleansed. You need to be cleansed. 
But what happens in baptism? It's a separation. You're being marked out. God is putting his name upon you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is being applied to your life. This is one of my own. This one is going to be raised in the gospel. You're being marked out. You're to live with a different name. Christian, you need to live out your name. If you have been baptized into the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to live out your name, your new name in Christ Jesus. And so Apollos, he he doesn't have that information. Now, before you jump on his case and knock him down a peg or two because he doesn't know, did you see that doesn't stop him from sharing with passion what he does know? You see, Apollos is teaching what he does know He's not teaching what he doesn't know, nor do any of us. But if you do know something concerning Jesus, you can, with great gospel fervor, share it. Now, I'm certainly not advocating. If you're excited about the gospel, you should preach. I'm not saying that. But the point of the gospel, when it comes into your life and it changes you, it is meant to go out from you. And you should show people You have been set free. You have something of great value for them. Share the gospel because it saves. And if you have been saved, how could you not share that news with someone else with great enthusiasm and excitement? The gospel sketches, it's it's providing for us freedom. It's showing us fervor. And then we get a picture of what I'll call family ministry. We get a picture of family ministry. Apollos is preaching and he's doing so boldly and Priscilla and Aquila on one occasion, they're, they're there and they're hearing and they're saying, yes, that sounds right. I like it, I like it. Did something sound off to you? Maybe they're at lunch evaluating the sermon and saying something seems to be missing. And so what do they do? They don't raise their hand during the sermon. They don't wait for the pastor to get to the back to let them know how bad it was. What does it say? Not that any of you do that to me. And certainly don't do that today, right? They pull them aside. They pull them aside and they, as Luke says, teach them the way more accurately. Apollos needed to grow. I need to grow. But Priscilla and Aquila, they take a, They take an interest. Maybe you could call this the early church internship program. They saw someone who's been called to the gospel ministry and they wanted to invest in him. They wanted to make sure what he was saying is biblically faithful. They're not saying don't be bold. They're just saying make sure it's biblical. Make sure you give them the whole of the gospel. And so they invest deeply in him. I will never forget what it was like to be in college. And we had something called an adoptive student program. Now, there were some very practical benefits. That was every Sunday, and I do mean every Sunday, they would have me over to lunch. And I would eat with their family. And often that meant I was allowed to do laundry for free. That was very helpful to someone like myself. But there were other benefits to sit around this table and watch this husband and this wife interact. And then there's their children and they're sharing the gospel and they're loving on me. 
They're encouraging me. They even checked up on me. They wanted to know how I was doing. They wanted to know what I was learning. And then just fast forwarding a few years at a previous church that we were a part of, they had, let's just call it a discipleship program. The senior pastor would meet with me once a week, every single week. I know that man had better things to do, but he would meet with me every week and he would want to tell me, how are you doing? Have you read any of this? What do you think about this? How's your family? And then an elder would do the same thing after that year. He would invest in me. We're so grateful for the internship program we've had. Many of you have seen them. We've just finished with three and we're looking to have another one begin in August. It's such a privilege to take those who are younger, maybe in age or in stage or just spiritually, and invest in them and say, let's make sure we are bold, but let's make sure we're also biblical. But there's something else that I think we learn about in this passage. It's not just the investment. It's not just the return on investment, you might say. Do you find it odd how Luke introduces these people? You know, if you read earlier in Acts 18, he formally introduces this couple And he says, this is Aquila and Priscilla. But did you know that's the last time Luke will reference them, Aquila and Priscilla. From here on out, he's going to say Priscilla and Aquila. Now, you could just say, that's a mistake. Or he's just being careless. He's trying to finish something off. I don't think he's doing that. I actually think he's trying to say something very, very Significant. What is he trying to tell us? Gospel ministry is for men and women. You know, Priscilla, Paul's going to use her name and he's going to call her Prisca. That's her formal name. So say Rebecca. Priscilla might be Becky. And then Paul's going to do the same thing. After formally announcing Aquila and Prisca, he's now going to call her Priscilla and Aquila. I think he's trying to encourage us. And he's trying to say theology and truth. It's for men and women. Priscilla was a a prominent figure in the city. By all accounts, she was of the higher status, educated. You might even say she was more articulate theologically in how to share it. I am not suggesting some kind of feministic egalitarian view here. What I'm trying to say is some of you, I am so deeply encouraged by you. Did you know, ladies, in our congregation, we have women with theological degrees. We have women who are taking theological classes. We have women who are pursuing it just casually on their own. And it is an incredible blessing because theology is not meant for ordained men only. It is, in fact, for all If you're asking the Danny Myers position, all of you should go to seminary. Now, I'm not saying all of you should preach. But could you imagine the blessing and the benefit? The New Testament is affirming the ministry and the theological equipping and establishing of women. Do you notice who is the one who's pulling them aside? We live in a 
a weird culture, to be honest, where we try to knock people down. And we try to say to women, we abuse the New Testament teachings and say, you're supposed to be subject. Fellas, we need to be very clear. They're only to be submissive, if you wanted to use that word or subject, to their husbands, not to every man. Women, you can share the gospel. Might I add, with a man. Perhaps do it with your husband close by. But you can share the gospel. Priscilla has him in his home, and she's instructing Apollos. And she's not thwarting some biblical view of headship. Aquila's there. But she is, in fact, encouraging him in the ministry. Paul speaks very highly of women. You can read about them in Romans 16 and how much they meant to the partnership and the labor of the gospel. You can read about others in Philippians 4. It's such a privilege. I'm so thankful for you ladies who spend much time studying the word of God, writing about it, sharing it, wanting to learn more, reading about it. And I want you to hear me say up here, please do it more and bring others with you. Because there is God-glorifying, kingdom-building ministry that isn't only by ordained men. We need all of you. And the beauty of this passage, the gospel sketches that Apollos needed to grow. I need to grow, and so do you. And we can do that together. We can encourage one another. And so I think Luke is giving to us a, a rough draft. Here are the early workings of the gospel in people's lives. What it does in them and what it does through them. It, it absolutely, it, it frees us from sin and death. It frees us from the approval and opinions of others. It, it promotes a, a fervency that says, I don't care who knows, I'm going to share it anyways. And it says that we can do ministry as a family. In our homes as a community. What a privilege to train up the next generation by sharing the gospel in our homes. That's the beauty of a sketch, isn't it? I think Luke is saying this is what it is starting to look like. But John is going to tell us what? It's not in its fullness yet. It's not in its fullness yet. What does he say? Beloved, we are children of God. That's what we are, and what we shall be has not yet come. But when he does come, he's talking about the glorious appearing of Christ. When he comes, what does John say? We will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. You get the fullness of that picture. That's what this supper is. You and I are in sketch form, but this is to remind you of what is coming. What is coming in the greatness and in the glory of our great King. Live out your name. Be free and live out your name. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we thank you that we live and move and have our being because of you. That in fact your word says the king's heart is 
like channels of water. The Lord directs it as he pleases. It tells us those who have been set free from sin and death, there is no greater freedom. There is no more freedom that we can have than being in Christ. And therefore, we are free to serve. We are free to love. We are free to demonstrate our thanksgiving of the gospel. And we can do so with great fervor and passion. Make us joyful Christians. Help us to be family-oriented Christians. Help us as men and as women to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of God, imparting yes to our children and even to those who perhaps are younger. Because we want to see the kingdom of God advance, knowing full well the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so as we look in the mirror and we see this rough draft, let us not give up hope, but long for the glorious appearing of our King. And that is Christ our Savior. Amen.